I felt Jonathan clutch my arm so tight that he hurt me, and he said under his breath, My God! He gazed at a tall, thin man with a beaky nose and a black moustache and pointed beard, who was observing the pretty girl. He was looking at her so hard he did not see either of us, and so I had a good view of him. His face was not a good face. It was hard and cruel and sensual, and his big white teeth, that looked all the whiter because his lips were so red, were pointed like an animal's. It is the man himself. freely and of your own will. You're listening to From Page to Scream, a podcast where we compare our favourite horror books to their on-screen adaptations, and where better to begin our series than with the mother of them all? Join me, Tara, and my co-host Chris for the next few weeks as we take a deep dive into Bram Stoker's legendary 1897 novel, Dracula. Yeah! So, Chris, it's part two. How are you feeling after our epic two-hour part one last week? I'm feeling excited, although I'm also feeling very aware that in our epic two-hour part one, we got through 46 pages. (laughs) When we say deep dive, we mean deep dive. Um, Which covered uh, Jonathan's visit to imprisonment and possibly escape from castle dracula well spoiler alert he he did escape because i jumped ahead with my reading there it felt relevant to read that particular section which was when uh, jonathan much later on sees an impossibly younger count dracula on the streets of london and in the edition that i've got with me today it's the wordsworth classics edition uh that's dracula appears in front of Jonathan and Mina there on page 143 and it's the first time we've seen him since page 45 gosh <laughs> where we left off last wow. week yeah that's that's a massive gap isn't it come on we need more dracula in dracula <laughs> <laughs> do we do we really though do you think because we we touched on this last time that that's some people's criticism of a book called dracula that there's not much dracula in it but i feel like the section we're about to cover now is my favourite part of the whole book. And even though Dracula is largely absent, his presence just permeates everything. Yeah, I think I would have to agree, actually. He is... You you can sort of feel the shadow of Dracula's hand reaching out very similarly as it did in Coppola's Dracula. You know, yes. with that sort of shadowy kind of, you know, reaching out. Um, it's quite quite impactful how he is for somebody that isn't really there for the majority of the book so and i i say his first appearance i mean that isn't strictly true because uh there are there are dogs and bats and wolves and uh we'll, we'll we'll come to all of that but um there's a wonderful section uh 
you know, as an example, uh, an almost a literal example of, of what you just described about the shadow of Dracula being cast over this section of the book, it's when, um, and I am jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, it's when Lucy is sleepwalking and Mina follows her into St. Mary's Churchyard um, where something dark stood behind the seat where the white figure shone and bent over it. What it was, whether man or beast, I could not tell. There was undoubtedly something long and black, bending over the half-reclining white figure. I called in fright, Lucy, Lucy, and something raised a head. And from where I was, I could see a white face and red, gleaming eyes. Those red eyes. We've already encountered those eyes, and there, there they are again in Whitby. So, yes... It's going back uh, a little way. So we left with Jonathan leaping from the walls of Castle Dracula in desperate hope of escape. Now, whether that was the, es- the, the escape of death or, or literal escape, uh, we're, left, we're left on tenterhooks there. And then the narrative shifts. And for the first time, it's not Jonathan Harker's journal. It's a letter from Miss Mina Murray to Lucy Westenra. We've already been introduced to Mina um, in the sense that we know that she's Jonathan's fiance, um, but finally we get get her perspective uh, and we learn that she is an assistant schoolmistress and she's currently on holiday in Whitby with her friend Lucy Westenra. Her very rich friend, Lucy. Her very rich friend who's, who's um, got shortly about to become engaged to, to a lord. Lord Godalming. <laughs> I'm just um I'm just flicking through here and having a look at these these letters. Do you know I think we probably ought to as a society go back to writing letters to our friends. Yeah, and that's odd because again we talked last time about the idea of Dracula as a period piece when actually it was incredibly contemporary because not only do we have letters we have sort of transcripts of recordings on wax cylinders and we have telegrams. Mm. I'm always intrigued. I don't know why, because we live in the age of, of, of WhatsApp and, you know, instant messaging. And But I'm always intrigued by sort of how efficient the telegram service was in London in in, in this period. Wasn't it? You could, you could send a message to someone inviting them over for tea of a morning, have a reply and then be ready and you'd have entertain them before lunchtime some lessons to be learned by royal mail yeah. from this i think <laughs> don't we've we've had bad experiences with royal mail <laughs> i sent tara some dracula books yeah oh and they were stolen they were we we have no it's... idea where they are in the country but i hope whoever has them is enjoying them it's because they know we're it's... not monarchists yes <laughs> <laughs> We're not allowed a royal mail. I know, I know. But yeah, it's it's very interesting, isn't it, to um to sort of look at these letters and you get a real sense of the time period. Mm. My dearest Mina, thanks and thanks and thanks again for your sweet letter. Aww. It was so nice to be able to tell you and have your sympathy. My dear, it never rains but it pours and how true <laughs> the old proverbs are. It's just wonderful, isn't it, this use of language in here? But where you left off there, uh, Lucy goes on to say, Here am I, who will be 20 in September, and yet I have never had a proposal till today. So she's, you know, she's practically an old maid. She is. And she says in (laughs) Coppola's Dracula, Here I am, practically a hag. 
Yeah. <laughs> and she's there, you know, with her boobs up to her chin and <laughs> Yeah. Couldn't be less hag like if she tried. Yeah. And what I I love about this particular letter i don't know if it's in this letter or in another one but um she's telling mina about the the three love interests so obviously we've spoken about dracula sort of being quiet of its time but then there are these little sort of nuggets of real progressive thought so for example in in this letter from lucy to mina Lucy sort of discussing her three paramours she has Mm. a, a choice of three three men and and she says why can't they let a girl marry three men or as many want her and save all this trouble but this is heresy and I must not say it that's that's a massive thing isn't it especially to come from a sort of female voice as well and I think I think Stoker does a really good job with both of these characters, considering that a lot of it's first person, either in their diaries or or letters. You know, they're really well-rounded and believable Mm. and so sort of contrasting in some ways. We touched last episode upon the idea of as as Mina as an almost final girl in that because she is this kind of very prim and proper housewife or is, you know, becoming one. Uh, and there are some, in fact, even in Lucy's letter, she says, you and I, Mina, dear, who are engaged and are going to settle down soon soberly into old married women. And you feel that is what's going to happen to Mina. It's definitely not what happens to Lucy. No. Um, but yeah, but it's kind of that whole concept and her three paramours. That's the heart of this section, really, isn't it? And that, and again, like the ambiguity of, of of Stoker and what does he believe and what is he saying? I find that so interesting because you know she, I must not say it. It's heresy, and and I still, you know, I've 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 seen the films a hundred times. I've read the book multiple times. Like, is he condemning Lucy? Is he celebrating her? It's it's very complex, isn't it? It is very complex. Yeah, I I think I would probably go for the perspective that actually he's celebrating her because. I think he lends her a voice that is rare for the time that it was written. Yeah. If you look at, you know, sort of female characters of the time, um, Mm -hmm. I think that it's very progressively written. And obviously, you know, we sort of see that same progressive mindset following through in Coppola's Dracula as well, where we really get that essence of of Lucy and, you know, sort of how vital she is and and how... You know, everybody that's sort of, you know, in her sphere just falls in love with her, don't they? Because yep. she's just such yeah. a an incredible human being. Mm-hmm. And um, because I can't shake the sort of A-level English thing, <laughs> I've made a note in that letter and she's talking about her three suitors and she says... Um, I sympathise with poor Desdemona, who, of course, was Othello's wife and was murdered by her husband. And I couldn't help but think, obviously, Lucy never does get married, but she becomes engaged to Arthur, who is the one who ultimately stakes her. Mm. Um, And I couldn't help but notice that parallel there. So that's, yeah, so, of course, one of her suitors is um, Arthur Homewood, Lord Godalming. Um, And there's, (laughs) we've joked about this before, an American from Texas... (laughs) Uh, Quincy Morris, yeah. who <laughs> doesn't really have much of a personality, does he? He's Apart just from American. Being a Texan. Yeah, he's literally, that's his whole kind of raison d'etre, isn't it? He's just it is. American. Well, no, no, no. He's got a big knife. <laughs> oh, yes, 
he does have a big knife because <laughs> he's an American. Yes, he's an American. And there's the scene in, in Coppola's Dracula where um, they're like, oh, it's such a big one. Can we touch it? And then he gets out <laughs> this blade. And they, oh, there oh, you go. It's, the innuendo. Yes, it's Chekhov's phallic blade. Someone has to have the, the, the instrument with which they will kill Dracula. Mm, and we'll touch on this a little bit later, but that phallic imagery does come into play, doesn't massively, it? With Lucy massively. With Lucy later on. And I think, you know, we've both said this is our favourite section of the book. We are huge fans of Lucy Westerner as a character. We so really are. before we kind of lose ourselves, um, I'm going to try and go over some of the other parts first. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, so there's, there's Quincy Morris, uh, Arthur Homewood, uh, and her other uh, suitor is Dr. John Seward. I always struggle not to say steward, but it's not, it's Seward. Seward. You have to say yes. it like Richard E. Grant. Seward. L- lunatic. Uh, Lu- lunatic. Lunatic. And he is the lunatic asylum man, which is a fantastic description. He is. I should say yes. we will be using the term lunatic asylum because that's what Stoker has called the institution that Dr. Seward runs in his book obviously that's not a term we would use nowadays but this was written in 1887 um and there's something there's almost something in there as well about the treatment of Renfield and how Renfield kind of asserts that he's actually quite sane um but uh, that's a digression but yeah appropriately Dr John Seward (laughs) is played by Richard E Grant in the Coppola film he is, and he's played very wonderfully. Yeah. yeah, he's incredible, isn't he, in that? He's only 29, the character, I mean. Is he 29? And he runs his very own lunatic asylum. Yeah, it's a, quite a position of power to be in, isn't and it? And then, of course, there's Renfield, the, the an inmate at Dr. Seward's asylum. And we touched upon Renfield last time. But in a very strange sort of way, because we talked primarily about the 1931 Universal Dracula and and how they sort of conflated, if that's the right word, the characters of Harker and Renfield. And it was actually Renfield who, who visited Dracula. So whilst we talked about Renfield in the movie, we, we sort of didn't really talk about the character because he wasn't he wasn't the raving lunatic at, at that point. And I love uh, how they communicate that in in the in the movie uh because of course in the book dracula has also arrived in whitby aboard the Mm. demeter except for some reason in the film uh it's not called the demeter it's called the vesper which is italian for wasp i don't know if there's some significance there oh i wonder possibly England's about to get stung i was gonna say (laughs) wasps can sting people again and again and again and never die Oh, oh my God. So. You know what? Van Helsing says that at some point in the book. Yeah, later on, um, Van Helsing says, the Nosferatu do not die like the bee when he sting once. He is only stronger and being stronger have yet more power to work evil. Oh, maybe, maybe there is a significance there after all. It could be. And I've just learnt that there is actually a wasp called Supraserfites draculae, so <gasps> named because of the uh, very long, sharp incisors. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Mm. Um, well, you know, Dracula can turn himself into pretty much anything. 
famously a bat, but maybe he's a wasp as well, a Vespa. There's a wonderful scene in the film where, because of course in the book, the Demeter uh, washes up at Whitby and there are no survivors and the captain, I think it's the captain, isn't it, is lashed to the wheel. Yes. With a crucifix. He is. But in the Universal film, there is a survivor and it's Renfield and it's he's sort of below deck. Mm. And there's a really, it's sort of, it's quite cheesy, but it, I always find it really eerie where they say, look, he's lost his mind or I can't remember the exact word, but it's like he's gone mad and you just, he's shot from above and they're looking down the steps and he's just kind of staring at the camera, completely insane. Yeah, he's he's just completely lost his marbles isn't he i think um we obviously get the sort of first um calls of of renfield calling dracula master 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 as well so he's insane for the rest of the movie and sort of deliciously and frighteningly so and we we discussed when we were watching it the other day there's a really odd scene where he's crawling across the, the the living room floor towards mina Mm. And the way it's shot, there's just something so uncanny about it. I actually think that Renfield in the 1931 Dracula is far more terrifying than Dracula is in the 1931 Dracula. I think part part of the reason for this is the fact that you've got somebody at the start of the film who is completely compassmentous, you know, he's just a respectable person you know, who sort of enters the castle. So true, yeah. And then he just sort of unravels. But we never really see why he unravels, what has led him to Mm. this. Um, And and also why Dracula has let him live, I suppose, because Renfield is there to sort of, I don't know, be a kind of conduit to to get dracula where he needs to be but um well it's yeah it's very interesting isn't it because with any story any fictional story there's a lot of coincidence and things are very oh isn't it handy that carfax abbey just happens to be right next to the asylum that that kind of thing and i suppose um structurally and this is very much implied in the Coppola Dracula as well, that Renfield was Jonathan Harker's predecessor. And it kind of, it makes it all quite neat. Like, ah, yes. So he went over to visit Dracula, went mad, came back to, to London. And now Dracula has links with this place and he knows and, and Renfield's near Carfax and all this. It's like Dracula has a plan. But I think that the Dracula of the book is actually much more anarchic. He's just this force. Mm. And you could say, oh, isn't it convenient that, um, you know, Jonathan is engaged to Mina, who is friends with Lucy, who um, Dr. Seward is one of her suitors, and it's his patient that's affected by Dracula. But I think actually with Dracula's arrival on the shores of England, I think it's everyone. I think everyone in this country is is now affected by him. And the fact is that we're just reading this narrative composed of various perspectives of people who lived there at the time. But I think everyone in Yorkshire and London and everywhere else in England is either affected or seduced or driven mad just by the presence of Dracula yeah, and very yeah I completely agree and I think it it's very similar to 
how the situation was back in Transylvania. Everybody knew who yeah. Dracula was, you know. And I, obviously, sort of in um, in the 1931 film, you've got the the bit with the crucifix where she gives mm-hmm. Renfield stroke Harker the crucifix and says, "For your mother's sake." And ev- oh, yeah. everybody in that scene, I think there's about seven or eight or nine people. And they're all sort of blessing themselves and, you know, kind of mm. gibbering away. And yeah, Dracula's reach extends beyond than has been described in the yes. book, um, I think. And that, that power is is very obvious to see within the films. Literally, the sort of, you know, come under my spell scene, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, again, we talked last episode about Dracula as the ultimate other and that's another thing that's very much at the heart of this story is the fear of the other and from a kind of there's a there's a xenophobia to it as well fear of the outsider in a in a you know what i mean fear of the foreigner um and it's this idea this corrupting influence this corrupting foreign influence and renfield seems kind of almost um emblematic of that but i don't think He's unique. I think a lot of because of the film versions and even, you know, we talked about Buffy last time when they do Buffy versus Dracula and it's Xander who is is the the Renfield character. Poor Xander. (laughs) Well, I mean, he's a bit of a dick, isn't he? So I don't know (laughs) if I care. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, there's this idea that somebody is is made Dracula's lackey or servant. But I think it's everyone in some degree. Um, But we have Dr. Seward examining Renfield and this is transcribed from the phonograph don't you know because uh, it's very modern he is so quaint in his ideas and so unlike the normal lunatic that I have decided to understand him as well as I can most people will be familiar with Renfield from the films but his whole thing is he's he's eating bugs but then he's feeding flies to spiders and eating the spiders and the idea that he will you know get energy from them because the blood is the life and this perpetuation of the life force isn't it exactly yeah he wants them he wants to get bigger and bigger and eventually he's he's begging dr Seward to let him have a kitten which is kind of hilarious but but also really bleak when he's saying a kitten a nice little sleek playful kitten that i can play with and teach and feed and feed and feed <laughs> But then Seward offers him a cat and he says, oh, yes, I would like a cat. I only ask for a kitten lest you should refuse me a cat. No one would refuse me a kitten, would they? I would refuse Renfield a kitten. I absolutely would refuse Renfield a kitten. (laughs) There's no way he can be trusted with um, with any feline. (laughs) But yes, Whitby, beloved Whitby, um... And there are some wonderful uh, descriptions of Whitby. This is a lovely place. The little river, the Esk, runs through a deep valley, which broadens out as it comes near the harbour. A great viaduct runs across with high piers, through which the view seems somehow further away than it really is. The valley is beautifully green, and it is so steep that when you are on the high land on either side, you look right across it unless you were near enough to see down. The houses of the old town, the side away from us, are all red-roofed and seem piled up one over the other anyhow, like the pictures we see of Nuremberg. Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey, which was sacked by the Danes and which is the scene of part of Marmion, where the girl was built up in the wall. 
It is a most noble ruin of immense size and full of beautiful and romantic bits. There is a legend that a white lady is seen in one of the windows. Between it and the town there is another church, the parish one, round which is a big graveyard, all full of tombstones. This is, to my mind, the nicest spot in Whitby. I agree, Mina. The graveyard is the nicest spot in Whitby. <laughs> Mina's a goth. She's a total goth. I, I like, you know, they, oh, we, we sit here because we enjoy the view. No, you just like hanging out in graveyards um, because they're beautiful. And this, this obviously beautiful description is written by somebody who has a genuine love of Whitby. And we know that Stoker adored it's Whitby as a place. incredible. You know, the, the love of, of, the, uh, of Whitby that he injects into this. And the way he describes it, and I'll just skip ahead a little bit. There's another, because it isn't objectively. I mean, Whitby is one of my favourite places on the planet. Um, but you could say objectively, it isn't nice because it's because it's in ruin and it's and it's a bit grim and it's grey because it's the English seaside. And and he doesn't make it idyllic. He describes it as I think of it with. Everything is grey, except the green grass, which seems like emerald amongst it. Grey earthy rock, grey clouds tinged with the sunburst at the far edge, hang over the grey sea, into which the sand points stretched like grey fingers. The sea is tumbling in over the shallows and the sandy flats with a roar, muffled in the sea mist drifting inland. The horizon is lost in a grey mist. It's like, it's so broody. But what I find really weird, well, not weird, but just something I can't quite get my head around, is that, and I mentioned this, I think, if not in our last episode, then our introductory episode, that Whitby is, and always will be, to me and thousands of other people, Dracula Town. Whitby is the place where Count Dracula first came ashore. And yet, he describes it so well and it conjures Whitby as I know it, as I remember it. Mm. And I can't conceive of Whit of a Whitby that isn't synonymous with Dracula. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As, para as paradoxical though this is, it, I can't get my head around the fact that Bram Stoker was in Whitby. And he mentioned, you know, it, it's a place that's rich with, with ghost stories and, and legends anyway. And he mentions... Um, he mentions the white lady. Um, but, you know, I've got a book on the shelf just over there full of Whitby ghost stories. And yet, you know, Dracula is the main one. And to think that there was a time when Dr when Whitby wasn't the Dracula town, I can't process it. Intellectually, I know that, 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 that that's a thing, but I can't. I can't. And it's even... Inconceivable, isn't it, to, to think, because it's just so synonymous. But even now, you have... Um... Oh, what's the shop? Is it Justin's? Mm, the, the, yeah. the the sweet shop, and they do Dracula's coffins. Yeah. And there's the Dracula experience. Exactly. That the the two are just so intertwined, and like you say, it's impossible to think of a time. I mean, even the word Dracula was found by Stoker in in Whitby. And that's the thing. So on the one hand, I'm saying, even though it's you know over a hundred years ago, Stoker is describing Whitby exactly as I know it. And yet it isn't because it's a Whitby without Dracula. I think, but no, but it isn't a Whitby without Dracula because this is Dracula. This is and Dracula. He, <laughs> yeah, and he was there and he had it all in his head. And Yeah. And I wonder, like, did he know that, that Dracula would come to Whitby and that's why he went to research? Or did the story just unfold in his head? 
whilst it's he was there. Funny, isn't it? I I suspect it probably was birthed whilst he was there, and obviously mo- most people associate Dracula with Transylvania, but yeah. Whitby was the true birthplace of Dracula in my mind. Oh, I think so. Without a and doubt. I think yeah, I think it's very telling. He wrote a lot of Dracula in Scotland, I believe, and was obviously very inspired by the landscape in terms of tone, except he didn't choose to set any of the novel there. You know, there's something about Whitby. It mm. just has... It, it's gothic. It's not as... Obviously, wherever he was in Scotland isn't quite as ruinous as Whitby. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, without wanting to sort of overanalyze. Who am I kidding? We've got, that's the whole point of this podcast, isn't it? How many pages got, have we covered now? Three? Uh, I, I'm on 55, 55, and we're only, you know, 17 hours into the podcast. Um, the fact that the, the Abbey is a ruin and he's come from this almost ruinous castle in Transylvania. And we've talked again about the idea that we're in, we're in safe modern England now where we have things like ordnance survey maps and blood transfusions and, and telegrams. And yet something lingers. And, it, and it, the, the abbey kind of almost seems symbolic of that in the sense that it's ancient yeah. and it's, it's crumbling, but it remains Mm. I suppose I see it as where is God? Because in Coppola's Dracula, you have obviously, as we discussed in part one, that incredible opening scene where he renounces God and everything to do with God. And to think about Whitby as a place, obviously it's synonymous with the ruins of the Abbey. Where is God? Is it a godless yeah. place? Is this why Dracula goes there? Because he knows that he's able to act out his nefarious deeds. <laughs> what of the one true God? Exactly. He is dead. Yeah. Had his chance. <laughs> <laughs> In the modern parlance. Blew it. <laughs> Wrong film. But, you know, Christopher <laughs> Lee, so it's all good. Um, so we talked last time about... Um, the significance of the name Dracula, that mm. it literally means son of the dragon, Dracul meaning dragon, except dragon and devil are sometimes used synonymously, certainly in, in, in the Bible, you know, this idea of the great serpent. So is Dracula the Antichrist? Mm. Is he the son of the devil? It's a very interesting perspective to think about. I or mean, is he the devil himself? Those red eyes, the sway mm. that he holds over people. He doesn't like crosses very much, does he? No. So. Something that has kind of crept into vampire lore is this idea that it's not the, the cross that vampires can't abide. It's it's the person's faith. Mm. But that isn't in the book, unless I've missed it. It, it is literally like he you know he can't withstand the cross. Even though that's all in the book, I think a lot of that comes from the film, like Van Helsing warding him off with a crucifix. It's so iconic and it's so wonderfully done on screen. Um, but uh, for the moment, even that, it seems odd and convenient that uh, that Lucy and Mina just happen to be on holiday in Whitby where Dracula ends up. But maybe not. Maybe Dracula has gone there deliberately. Mm, maybe. And I think one of the wonderful things about having the inclusion of Whitby is this incredible dialect that oh. Stoker includes as well. We we have a, a little piece here where um, 
Mina's asking about the bells at sea and the white lady oh. to a, to oh. a Yorkshireman, and he says, I "Mr. Swales, I wouldn't fash myself about them, Miss." I can't do a Yorkshire accent. You sounded a bit Cockney then. (laughs) Even though I'm sitting here in Yorkshire and I've lived in Yorkshire now for for two years and I still have no Yorkshire twang, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, If only you had a a dictionary of of Yorkshire dialect. If only. Them feet folks from York and Leeds... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be always eating cured errands and drinking tea and looking out to buy a cheap jet would creed out. I wonder myself who'd be bothered telling lies to them. <laughs> <laughs> Spot the southerner. You you probably should have read that bit because <laughs> it might have sounded slightly more convincing. <laughs> it was funnier, funnier when you. I thought of you when I read that bit actually. The idea of uh, feet folks from York always be eating and drinking tea. I thought, yeah, sounds about right. Oh yeah, yeah standard. <laughs> I love I love this character because in a strange way, um, you know, we talked about how Jonathan interacts with the peasants. Uh, in Transylvania or oh, mm. it's not even strictly Transylvania is it but um and that idea of superstition and he almost kind of looks down on them and I don't think Mina does look down on Mr Swales but there's a there's an element of kind of um, and I think there is a, an obvious class divide there there's a massive well. class divide yeah she's she's very proper and he's and and yet um Mr Swales is the complete opposite of of the uh, the locals the sort of rustic locals uh, in Transylvania, because he says it's all nonsense. He doesn't believe in in the old ways. It'd be all fool talk, lock, stock, and barrel. That's what it be, and yeah. now else. And this, I suppose, again, is bringing in the other into a into yes. modern, well, what was then the modern times. Yeah, and again, that 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 crumbling abbey and God is dead. And we, this is actually one of my. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's one of my favourite passages and it's it's so easy to overlook it as just like oh she's talking to the, the the funny locals but he's talking about the concept of resurrection and how he thinks it's a load of nonsense with the mm. idea you know uh talking about uh the the weight of the lies wrote on the tombstones here lies the body sacred to the memory wrote on them and yet nigh half of them there can't be no bodies at all the memories of them haven't cared a pinch of snuff about much less sacred lies all of them are nothing lies of one kind or another my gog it'd be a square scounderment scounderments what a word it dare judgment when they come tumbling up here in the death sarks all duped together trying to drag the tombstones to prove how good they was some of them trembling and dithering with their hands that dozened and slippy from lying in the sea that they can't even keep the grip of them and he's kind of mocking the whole concept of of eternal life as promised by the the catholic church isn't he and the mm. idea that you know these people who were you know murdered by pirates or whatever it is or or, or lost at sea is it, that there are no bodies under these graves and he says there's a wonderful image where he says really you know do you think when the trumpets sound that they're going to be lugging you know oh here it is do you think that all these men will have to make a rush to Whitby when the trumpet sounds and it's so interesting isn't it like what a load of nonsense and yet Dracula it rises from the grave it rises from the grave I think that Browning and Coppola did Mr Swales really dirty by not Mm -hmm. including such wonderful vernacular 
they did they did whip me dirty let me tell you they at did. least at least at the very least in the universal film there is a, a snippet of a, a newspaper article that says that the vespa has has washed up in yes, Whitby. At least it is. says Whitby, but there's no not even a sniff of Whitby in the Capola film which no, which breaks my heart. I mean, how the the I know it was like stu- mainly studio based and they're not going to lug production up to Yorkshire, but they should have done because the silhouette of that abbey, it's so iconic and so gothic and so perfect. Mm. But yeah, they're talking to you because one of their favorite places to sit, Mina and Lucy is is just happens to be just happens or are they drawn there the grave of a suicide gosh yeah that's um it's very dark isn't it and that's there's, there's a bit of a misconception as well about this idea that suicides aren't allowed to be buried in consecrated ground um i think it generally isn't actually true it's just very controversial and suicides were often uh suicides or murderers were often buried at midnight so no one would know it was happening and frequently in an unmarked grave but there are there are there are many 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 suicides in in consecrated burial grounds Mm. yeah i think it i can't remember when they stopped doing it exactly but i think it was somewhere around the late 1800s where they actually stopped burying people at crossroads Mm. who had committed suicide which is very interesting because we you know we talked last time about the fact that Bram Stoker absolutely did not invent the vampire genre these creatures existed for hundreds of years before uh in folklore and and in print but well, we'll go into that another time but um but he brought all these ideas together but one of in in folklore there is this idea that um anyone who had an improper burial would return as an undead and yeah. feed off the blood of the living and the idea of the crossroads i find very interesting um you know witches and vampires were buried at crossroads weren't they yeah and i i think obviously like you say with sort of suicides particularly they were viewed very negatively but interestingly mm. here it says um talking about the sort of tombstone sacred to the memory of george cannon who died ah. in the hope of a glorious resurrection yes falling from the rocks at Kettleness. Now, glorious resurrection, that would uh, say to me, or perhaps suggest the possibility of undeadness. Doesn't Dracula rise after a death, essentially? Christ was, uh, was killed, but then rose from the grave and promises his followers eternal life uh, if, if they drink his blood. Um, make of that what you will make of that what you will <laughs> dear listener but yeah glorious resurrection is he the one uh, that George Cannon who died just to spite his mother oh, there we go yeah he's the only son of his son mother. of his mother <laughs> she was a widow really Mrs. Sw- Mr. Swales I don't see anything funny in that he says uh, you don't see it funny <laughs> that's because you don't garm the sorrowing mother was a hellcat that hated him because he was a crooked, a regular Latimer he was, and he hated her so much he committed suicide in order that she mightn't get an insurance she put on his life. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm not a Christian or a Catholic, but um, I don't think that that person would uh, have a glorious resurrection because that's no. another. Surely, um, 
the grave of the suicide uh, people who again this is a term that people aren't using anymore the idea of committing suicide because one one commits a crime um you know that that idea of it being something that uh, if you took your own life you wouldn't be able to go to heaven mm. which reminds me and this is a complete sidebar but it is dracula adjacent the, the really sad story about um peter cushing who of course famously played van helsing in many of the the, the hammer dracula films who was so distraught when his wife died, he wanted to kill himself so he could be with her again. But he was he, he was terrified that if he killed himself, he wouldn't be able to go to heaven. So he used to walk up and down the stairs really quickly in the hope that he would give himself a heart attack. Oh, that's tragic. Oh, sorry, did you not know that? I never knew that, no. Uh, yeah, and his whole thing that he could plead that it wasn't suicide, it was an accident. I was just... Oh, but he, he was trying to... I do awful. know that Christopher Lee got him through some of the most darkest times. Yeah, I think their relationship was kind of what he lived for, really, wasn't it? It was. And they were such great friends in real life. It's really, it makes me quite emotional to think about it, really. And I love, you know, the fact that they were Frankenstein and the creature and Dracula and Van Helsing, like always enemies, always yeah. rivals. And yet, you know, they were, there was such a huge love between them. Um, but maybe we'll talk about the uh, Hammer Dracula films at some point. I hope so. But yeah, so for whatever reason, Lucy is, is drawn to this, the grave of the suicide. And again, we don't get that in the film adaptations. Lucy is done dirty by Todd Browning as well, really. We'll come to that in a second. But I think Lucy is 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 portrayed much, much better and much more faithfully in the Coppola version. Very There's much. no there's no suicide grave but there is the wonderful scene of her and mina uh in the maze in the oh, rain yes the, the the maze scene it's so so beautiful um and i think at this point we probably do need to give a mention to the costume designer oh. In Capone's yes, Dracula. yes, yes. We couldn't remember her name uh, last episode. Yes, um, the wonderful, wonderful Aiko Ishioka, mm. who designed those lavishly beautiful costumes. And obviously, we see them running around in the maze oh. and the rain, and then obviously a little bit later on, Lucy in her red gown, oh. floating yeah. in the wind. Um, but I, she actually won an Academy Award for best costume design for Dracula. And rightly so. Very it's such rightly a stunning so. film. Stunning. And I, I think those costumes go so far in making that film. Yeah, absolutely. As evocative as it is. Because as, as beautiful as the sets are, like Dracula's castle had been done in by Universal and by Hammer, and it had been done really well. It looked beautiful, but this film is so unique and so distinctive because of its costumes and like mm. we talked about last time in castle dracula the the, the sort of silk almost sort of kimono-esque mm. um robe that dracula wears and his hair it's just oh it's and again it's that idea of a director wanting to not just put the book on screen wanting to to give a vision of dracula mm. an interpretation of dracula and it all adds to giving that coppola version its own very very unique dna i think Indeed, and I think, obviously, sort of throwing back to the book and Dracula's homoerotic obsession mm. 
with yeah, it's uh, quite with, sapphic. The yes, scene in the rain. Parker, it's incredibly sapphic, um, and I think. Do you feel that there's a little bit of a sapphic undertone within Mina and Lucy's friendship, particularly in those letters? I can't answer that question. I think yes, but I saw the Coppola film, I think, before I read the book, so I've always projected that, um, and I don't trust I don't trust my judgment, <laughs> um, but I'm inclined to say yes. yes. What do you think? I yeah, I think there probably is. There's a there's a lot of love there. Um, particularly from Mina towards Lucy. Mm, and mm. I think that Lucy is everything that Mina would like to be. She's vivacious, yes. she's outgoing. Um, <clears throat> you know, obviously she's very wealthy, lots of suitors. And you can see the same in the Coppola version as well. I think there's one point where um, Winona Ryder sort of says about Lucy, you know, sort of having all these people flying around mm. her and so i think that that definitely carries over from the book um and there's there's such she cares for her so much oh, as well even though the, yeah the love is so deep so as lucy starts sleepwalking and she's walking out to that that suicide grave and that's the 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 extract i read earlier where mina finds something you know bending over her in the darkness which course is dracula um but uh and again sort of it's it's almost a bit scandalous because she's uh out there in her in only her night dress like i said in, in the in the coppola film we get that gorgeous red sort of sheer gown but um you know and mina sort of trying to cover her up and and protect her her mm. honor and it's you know it's it's very funny but it's also really sweet i think as i came close she puts up her hand in her sleep and pulled the collar of her night dress around her throat while she did so, there came a little shudder through her, as though she felt cold. I flung the warm shawl over her and drew the edges tight around her neck. I dreaded lest she should get some deadly chill from the night air, unclad as she was. And it, it's, it's all a bit Victorian, like, oh, you can't go out wearing actually probably quite a modest nightgown. <laughs> uh but but also just the, you know the love and affection that she doesn't want her to get cold and she wraps her up i just i don't know i find that really touching yes and I, i've actually just found a little extract here from lucy westenra's diary i must imitate mina and keep writing things down then we can have long talks when we do meet i wonder when it will be i wish she were with me again oh it's beautiful it's beautiful and i you know it just goes beyond the realms of friendship i think maybe it's just because my sapphic mind wants to yeah <laughs> wants it to be so i don't know but also you kind of were up against that kind of um victorian repression aren't we it's like i think i think it was actually after we'd finished recording last episode but we were talking about jonathan's like desire for the brides and we were saying and maybe for dracula you know maybe maybe that's where jonathan's proclivities lie mm. but we said but he's so buttoned down and repressed how would you know <laughs> how would you know yeah you just wouldn't know would you but um but that yeah the scene in the book where they're in the maze and the rain and it's interspersed with dracula's arrival in the boat mm. and he's kind of somewhere between his renewed self and his his haggard old self and he's there in the coffin um and that the camera work is insane it's sort of just like floating over and you know wobbly and they're giggling and dracula's laughing almost like he's seeing everything and it really to me captures that sense of 
Dracula's arrival, not just in Whitby, but in England. Mm. And he brings a kind of mania with him. I say mania, uh, a loosening of of Victorian values, shall we say. um, He comes to challenge everything and he's this almost revolutionary force. Yeah, and I think at that that point, obviously, the only sort of sexuality, really, that we see in the film is from the brides. Yes. And then, obviously, with the arrival of Dracula, you have that sort of very, very sexual kiss between Mina and Lucy in the maze. Um, But he brings something animalistic with him at that point as well. Well, yeah, because the, the, the bit I read about the figure bending over her in the book, that's much more uh, explicit in the mm. film. Uh, yes. And we literally, we literally see her having sex with Dracula, but having sex with Dracula in the form of a wolf. Yes. Ow. I wince every time I see that particular part. <laughs> is this really sexy or is this like horrible? Or is there something wrong is it... with me? Because actually yeah. it is quite hot. <laughs> Um, But again, it's that kind of she is, uh, we assume, uh, a virgin at this point. And she's, you know, we talk about, we joke about her being almost on the shelf, but she's not even 20 yet. She's only 19. Mm. Uh, And then, you know, she has what is in the film, I mean, presumably her first sexual encounter with a man. And he's this kind of literal kind of hairy, savage beast, Mm. which is quite funny because Dracula is actually a lot of the time, quite effeminate. Yeah, and again, I think it's just that sort of juxtaposition against this wild, animalistic Mm behaviour against something so pure and virginal and beautiful. Yes. And that's what makes it so much shocking. Yes, and then even when uh, Mina first spies her in the churchyard, she's this figure in white. She doesn't even know that it's Lucy at first. She's yeah. she's in white, although of course she's in red in the film. And and then later on, when uh, when Lucy is transformed, there are lots of you know um, the language that Stoker uses. There's lots of reference to purity and impurity mm. uh, or unholiness. But we'll we'll come on to that. But um, but going back to the fact that Dracula appears as some sort of hideous i say wolf i mean how would you describe that thing because his face is almost bat-like with the nose the the slits of the nose i think it's just yeah it's it's another representation of just how well dracula can shapeshift isn't Mm. it there are so many versions of him um sort of wolf-like bat-like i i think it's just a representation of the beast yes dracula really is beneath everything that's that's a very good point um and appropriate because as well as the um the captain who is dead and and lashed to the 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 wheel of the demeter uh there's a dog isn't there a dog uh comes bounding out of the ship and what really made me laugh uh is that in the it's mentioned in the in the local clippings and things that this this dog is is on the loose and it says a good deal of interest was abroad concerning the dog which landed when the ship struck and more than a few members of the SPCA which is very strong in Whitby have tried to befriend the animal as you said it's Dracula and they're trying to befriend him but also SPCA which is presumably the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals mm. but not the RSPCA so what's what's Queen Victoria got against <laughs> 
<laughs> animals i want to know oh it's just shocking just a few pages later it really made me laugh um they bring up the dog again no trace has ever been found of the great dog at which there is much mourning for with public opinion in its present state he would i believe be adopted by the town and i thought again it's funny because i think that dog is literally dracula so don't worry he's fine but also the idea that this this beast might be adopted by whitby and dracula has been adopted by Whitby. Dracula is is the the mascot of Whitby. So I thought that was weirdly sort of prescient. Do you know what I mean? Mm, interestingly as well, Renfield suddenly displays dog-like behaviour as well. Oh, yeah. Um, sniffing around and, and acting like a dog. And I, I believe this is when Dracula is has either arrived in Whitby or is very close to arriving in Whitby. There's so much real-life inspiration behind the story of Dracula. And although this pod is called From Page to Screen, we're now going to go from fiction to fact. Here are some fantastic facts you may not have known. The Quayside restaurant in Whitby has been run by the same family since 1968. However, the restaurant actually used to be Whitby Town Library, which is where Bram Stoker likely found the name Dracula meaning son of Dracul, or son of the dragon, or in modern Romanian, devil. He probably found this term whilst on his family holiday in the 1880s. Most people think that Stoker based Dracula on Vlad Tepes, better known as Vlad the Impaler, but there may have been an inspiration for the mesmeric count that lay closer to home in the form of actor Sir Henry Irving. Stoker worked with Irving at the Lyceum Theatre as his business and stage manager for many years and there's a striking similarity between Irving and the description of the Count with his aquiline nose, heavy eyebrows and piercing eyes. Irving invited Stoker to a dinner party after being especially pleased by a review that Stoker left of one of his performances and Stoker in turn was mesmerised by the actor's recitation of a poem at the dinner party. I sat spellbound, Stoker wrote, in personal reminiscences of Henry Irving. The whole thing was new, recreated by a force of passion which was like a new power. After the performance, Stoker apparently burst out into something like a violent fit of hysterics. Was he moved by the art? Or did Irving work a bit of vampiric magic on Stoker? Either way, Bram wrote Dracula whilst working with Henry Irving, and he remained in thrall to Irving until the actor's death. Now, Bram, also being a bit of a goth, took around 90 names from the graveyard at St Mary's in Whitby, and eight of those made it into Dracula, including the old Yorkshireman Mr Swales, who seems to psychically feel the cold hand of Dracula when he arrives ashore in Whitby. You can see the real Mr Swales gravestone at St Mary's today. Despite being an important location in Dracula, and one that's irrevocably associated with the Count, did you know that Bram Stoker actually never visited Eastern Europe? However, he did leave a wealth of notes that show he researched Transylvania extensively, including its folklore and history. But Stoker's Irish background also had a part to play in the creation of Dracula. Stoker was a sickly child who spent long periods lying in bed, 
And to pass the time, his mother, Charlotte Thornley Stoker, who was a keen social rights activist, lived through the devastation that a cholera epidemic wreaked in Ireland. She regaled the young Bram with tales of blood and death, living bodies buried alive with those of the dead, as Sligo's population was decimated by what must have seemed like an apocalyptic event. These must have had an influence on Bram as he went on to write Dracula. <laughs> So we've talked a lot about Dwight Fry uh, in the 1931 Dracula, but we haven't really talked about Tom Waits. We haven't talked about Tom who Waits. Who I know is a favourite of yours. He is. Yeah. Oh, I love Tom Waits. He's just wonderful. And what a revelation he was to me in Dracula. Careful, old dove. <laughs> Canopy. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he's loving it, isn't he? he? Is. And I think that um, I don't find him as like frightening in the way that something about fry is genuinely unsettling mm. but he's sort of he's just so wonderfully bizarre he's incredibly eccentric i think if i had to use yeah. one word to define tom waits's remfield it would be eccentric um there's something less maniacally oh, i can't think of the right word lu- lunatical <laughs> he, i know what you yeah, mean he's he, He's not as kind of in-your-face insane as Dwight, Fr- Dwight Fry's Renfield, is he? And actually, almost when he speaks, the things that he says almost make sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but... It's very interesting that you use the word um, eccentric because you get the impression a character like that if he had more money and we know that he was only a what a clerk because he was doing um jonathan harker's job yes. so he's not exactly you know uh upper echelons of society perhaps if uh if he was landed gentry he'd had lots of servants bringing him kittens <laughs> to eat he would. and there's a logic there's a logic about what he says in terms of you know consuming the life and when you don't eat meat something that you frequently get is where'd you get your protein <laughs> where'd you get your iron where'd you get your and, it's, and there's this idea that you could only get certain types of protein or certain minerals in animals mm. and you say yeah but why do you think the animals have that where did they get it from it's from eating plants if you're getting iron from from eating red meat it's because that animal Eight plants while it was alive. Exactly, and that's what Renfield is doing, albeit in a not very vegan way. Mm. He's he's funny, isn't he, Renfield? He's a really mixed bag mm. because I think in the films, obviously, he's portrayed as you know a complete lunatic who's just lost his mind, mm-hmm. eccentric. But there are points in the book, aren't there, when actually he's quite measured in yes the way that he sort of behaves and his demeanor and i i think um dr seward 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 kind of takes that as being part of his madness but is it part yeah, of his yeah. madness i don't think it is and it's very telling isn't it in the extracts we read earlier that dr seward says he's like no other lunatic mm. and it almost implies that well perhaps he's something else yeah yeah, but I think, you know, he has that sort of pathology of the vampire running through him, doesn't he? Mm. Yes. So maybe, yes. I don't know, maybe part of Dracula's power is the ability for 
the humans that he infects to kind of take mm. some of him like a sponge almost yeah so but meanwhile mina has has ushered lucy back inside after sleepwalking and then it then it all begins and it's amazing i i find it amazing to read this um because this so many i'm not going to say tropes so many conventions so many staples sort of begin here and uh mina notices that uh, oh she's been so clumsy with her safety pin uh that she's pricked mina's throat because she notices that the skin of her throat was pierced. Mm. I must have pinched up a piece of loose skin and transfixed it, for there are two little red points like pinpricks, and on the band of her nightdress was a drop of blood. It's all going to kick off, isn't it? God, can you imagine? Oh, <laughs> the depiction of, of what happens next in the Coppola film is incredibly faithful to the novel. Uh, and as much as we adore... Bella Lugosi uh, and Dwight Fry and the 1931 Dracula. It really does this this plot a disservice, and and it's interesting what you were saying last time about the whole what was it the Hayes Code, mm, yeah, and how they could have depicted anything they what they wanted. Perhaps they thought some elements of this were too controversial or too shocking. I don't know. I'm not sure, or maybe it was just for time. But it really is almost hilarious how brief. Uh, Lucy's fate is in the 31 film bearing in mind it takes up the best part of 200 pages yeah. of, of the uh, edition I've got she's here she's little more than a, a kind of side player isn't she really in the 1931 mm, yeah. film she's literally just a victim there's no exploration of the nuances of her character at all like there is in the book no. and like there is in Coppola's Dracula mm. as well that said her well, not exactly her death scene, but the, the scene in which she is bitten. We don't get her sleepwalking to the grave. We don't get her protracted death, but we do get the rubber bat on a string flapping outside her window, which does look great. So, it doesn't look real, no, but it looks great. And we get that archetypal image, don't we, of the victim lying prone in yes, her bed, prone. in her nightgown with the window mm-hmm. open. That, cl- it's all that there. classic horror imagery of what people think Dracula attacking a victim actually looks like. Yes, yes. And then again it's sort of the camera just pans wonderfully. We don't there's no visual effects. We don't see any kind of transformation. But we see this bat and the camera swoops around and there is Bella Lugosi yeah. resplendent in his cape, looking utterly bat like very bat like as he creeps towards mm. her. And oh it's just perfect. And he leans over her and there are no fangs. There's no biting. There's no blood, but it's all implied no. and it's implied so and well. And there's so much movement from Lugosi in that scene, even though he's barely moving at all. It's yes. like he's taken yeah. the qualities of the bat wings into his arms as he put, puts yes. his arms down. It's phenomenal to watch. Like you say, obviously, when that scene kind of pans round, the... Um, I don't know. It's just wonderful to watch. We should talk about the cloak, shouldn't we? Because he uses the cloak to such wonderful effect. He's a bit flappy, isn't those, he, with those... his cloak? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's and the scene later on where he recoils from Van Helsing when he holds up the crucifix mm. and he literally shields his face as if with his cloak as if it's a giant wing. Yeah. Um, and that's everybody knows that Count Dracula wears a long black cape. Um 
this is where it comes from. It's from it's from Bella Lugosi. It's from the film. Do, do you know the the origin story? I don't. Do you know? <gasps> I do. Yes. It's because um, Bella Lugosi played Dracula on stage, and when Universal were making the film, they actually had somebody else in mind for the part. And he had to really fight for it. And he felt, you know, kind of entitled to it as he would kind of already made his mark on this character. Mm. Um, one scene in the play, uh, there was a sort of a special effects scene where Dracula disappears in a puff of smoke. And the way they did this was there was a trap door on stage. So they gave him a cloak so he would hold the cloak above his head. The trap door would open. Bella Lugosi would fall down but the cloak, the cloak would remain and then a few seconds later drop. So to the audience, it looked as though he covered himself with his cape and then just dissipated wow. into thin air. But the problem was they could still see his face. So they told him to turn his collar up. So he turned his collar up to obscure his face, but they could still see it. So they had to keep making the collar bigger and bigger and bigger to get the effect that they wanted and they ended up with the absurdly kind of pointed winged collar yeah the trademark dracula collar everybody knows that the count in sesame street everybody knows that count dracula has a massive collar on his cape but that's why it actually came from the stage play as just a means to obscure his face so it could make it look like he disappeared it's classic case of necessity being the mother of invention i I love that so much I've I've actually just read that apparently in 2011 the Lugosi family put the cape up for auction for 1.2 million dollars and apparently it failed to sell. Nobody wanted to buy it. What? Hang on. I thought he was buried in the cape. So, well, apparently he was buried in the tuxedo, oh. but this is the opera cape. Maybe it's a different cape. So at this point in the book, we haven't seen Dracula properly. We've seen him as a shadow. We've seen him as a bat and a, and a dog and whatnot. But we've not seen him walking around as a man. But in the um, in the Universal film, he's there straight away. And there is an opera scene where he introduces himself uh, to Jonathan Harker. Jonathan Harker first appears here. Uh, and Mina. And Mina is Dr. Seward's daughter, just to confuse things. Mm. Um and Dr. Seward, as we pointed out, is about 100 years old, which is kind of hilarious because when he eventually calls Van Helsing, who is supposed to be his mentor, they look yeah. about the same age. <laughs> but uh, And Lucy is called Lucy Weston in the film, not Westenra. Mm. I wonder why they made those changes. Yeah, with the name, I, I, I guess it's a bit like, you know, in the Stardust film, Tristram Thorne becomes Tristan yes. Thorne. Because uh, I think they think, oh, people won't be able to pronounce a strange they probably, name. So maybe it's a Western yeah, I think it's easier yeah. to absorb if it's shorter. But uh, but Lucy Weston uh, we, is bitten by Dracula, and then it's 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 almost hilarious that it immediately then cuts to her corpse <laughs> on an operating table being exhumed, uh, being examined by medical students. Mm. Yeah, and there's a bit of a leap where Van Helsing, who we haven't even met in the in the novel by this point, just holds up a test tube and says, "We are dealing with the undead." <laughs> Words to that effect. As we, as, well, that was a leap. Yeah, like as we were saying in a, in in a chat, um, Van Helsing's a real dichotomy, isn't he? Because he's a man of science mm, yes. who is dealing with vampires, and 
his belief is unshakable. So how does that work? I think, yeah, that's kind of, and that's something that's at the heart of the novel, isn't it? Well, the, the story in, in all its iterations, this idea of like <clears throat> the ancient versus modernity and superstition yeah. versus science and rationalism. And it's so wonderful that Van Helsing is so believable in his conviction that we are dealing with something supernatural because he is a man of mm. science and reason. He's not some superstitious peasant thrusting a crucifix at someone yeah. he's, you know um and there's there's a wonderful line in the universal film actually where where bella lugosi and van helsing meet and uh, and dracula says uh, you know i can't remember exactly but he's like oh you're a renowned man of science is even in transylvania we have heard of the great van helsing mm, and it kind of <laughs> speaks to that class divide doesn't it that nobody Massively. questions van helsing when you know, without even batting an eyelid, oh, it, it, it looks like vampires. And then, like yeah. you say, obviously, the sort of Transylvanian lower class, or referred to yeah. as peasants in the book. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Are, are kind of, you know, sort of mocked and vilified and treated like they're completely stupid. So, yeah, it's, it's funny to see that class divide sort of as such an obvious thing within the books and the film. Yeah, Lucy's death and her undeath are much more protracted in the novel and on the 13th of august uh she's still been sleepwalking and mina says that she woke in the night and found lucy sitting up in bed still asleep pointing to the window and you get the impression that everything that lucy's doing at the moment is is all very subconscious she's driven by some you know some secret sleeping desire and then you get the next day this afternoon she made a funny remark his red eyes again. They are just the same. <laughs> it was an odd expression coming apropos of nothing that it quite startled me. And then we get, so I've highlighted a few passages as it goes on. Um, so we'll sort of skip through the days. We've got Lucy was languid and tired. And we hear that she gets up and walks about the room and sits at the open window. Last night, I found her leaning out when I woke up, and Mina's still f feeling very, very guilty about that unlucky prick of the safety pin. Because her wounds haven't healed. They are still open, and if anything, larger than before, and the edges of them are faintly white. They are like two little white dots with red centres. But then, after that, we hear that Lucy is ever so much better and that the roses seem to be coming back already to her cheeks, though she is still sadly pale and wan-looking. And yet she still is drawn to the grave. And she's trying to remember. She's saying, I didn't quite dream, but it all seemed to be real. I only wanted to be here in this spot. I don't know why, for I was afraid of something. And it all, you know... It goes back to that idea that there's something in Lucy, something primal almost mm. calling her. Yeah, she's she's kind of being used as a puppet, isn't she? Very much so. And it's around this time, a good 40-odd pages later, that we finally find out that, that Jonathan is still alive. Mina writes, joy, joy, joy. And she's probably the only person who feels that way to learn that boring Jonathan with his ordnance survey maps is still alive. Jonathan. Who? Completely, completely <laughs> forgotten about him. And uh, he's in a convent in, uh, is it Budapest? Yes. Yes. He's, uh, so she has a letter from Sister Agatha in the hospital of St. Joseph and, and Mary in Budapest. So she goes off to be 
reunited and and married with Jonathan. But that's when things get really, really interesting. Oh, and funnily enough, you were talking about um, how Renfield is acting kind of dog-like after Dracula has appeared as a hound. Well, now, you know, there's this bat flapping at Lucy's window, but also Renfield, I think, escapes and they, they find him pressed against an old chapel door. Seward says, he looked around but could see nothing. Then I caught the patient's eye and followed it, but could trace nothing as it looked into the moonlit sky except a big bat which was flapping its silent and ghostly way to the west. Bats usually wheel and flit about, but this one seemed to go straight on, as if it knew where it was bound for, or had some intention of its own. I wonder what that could have been. The next entry, just a few days later, is from Lucy Westenra's diary, where she describes a sort of scratching or flapping at the window, and then the following morning... I am horribly weak. My face is ghastly pale and my throat pains me. So at this point, Arthur Homewood, Lucy's fiancé, writes to Jack Seward because he's so worried about, about her. And it's through him that Van Helsing finally makes his appearance in the book. And it's very exciting because once, once Seward has seen Lucy and he says that she's somewhat bloodless, but he can't see the usual anemic signs um and arthur is worried that she's getting worse every day and she looks awful so then we hear that uh, dr seward has written to my old friend and master professor van helsing of amsterdam who knows as much about obscure diseases as anyone in the world uh this bit's kind of represented you know in the film with um with Bella's Dracula sort of talking about how renowned he is. There's a wonderful description of Van Helsing by John Stewart here where he says, he is a seemingly arbitrary man, but this is because he knows what he is talking about better than anyone else. He is a philosopher and a metaphysician and one of the most advanced scientists of his day. And he has, I believe, an absolutely open mind. This, with an iron nerve and a temper of an ice brook, an indomitable resolution, self-command and toleration exalted from virtues to blessings and the kindliest and truest of hearts that beats. These, from his equipment, from the noble work he is doing for mankind, work both in theory and in practice, for his views are as wide as his all-embracing sympathy. He's a bit different, isn't he, from Anthony Hopkins? Van Helsing, who's just <laughs> fucking vile, isn't he? He's just not a nice person Ooh. at all. He's not. <laughs> He's a complete ass. Why do you think they chose to depict him like that? I don't know. I really don't know why they chose to depict him like that. Because, again, he's very, very different from the Van Helsing in 1931 film, isn't Very. He? Um... Maybe to give, I don't know, maybe to give a sort of little bit of light relief. I I really don't know. He's very funny. He is. He's you very don't, funny. Yeah. He's very, he's very matter of fact, but he's very lecherous as well, isn't yeah. he? He's <laughs> like yeah. octopus with I just, arms everywhere. I, I love, I love this, you know, he's, he's. Again, it's in the book, but it's delivered so differently in the film where he's like, uh, yeah, we're going to cut off our head and put a steak for our Yeah. Like, so he almost seems to take it. delight in it. He does, yeah. Yeah. But then I suppose if, well, maybe, I mean, if he sees vampires or vampire, as I think he, he 
calls, <laughs> calls him in another part yeah. of the book. He sees them as as vermin, you know, or mm, the enemy. Mm. And I think it's he's made it part of his life's purpose to eradicate as many vampires as he can find. We talked a lot about the the public perception of Dracula and how it isn't necessarily the the same Count Dracula that exists within the pages of the book, um, but I guess there's there's a there's a pop culture Van Helsing as well mm. uh, that hopefully isn't Hugh Jackman, <laughs> but it's um, certainly Peter Cushing and Van Helsing is a vampire hunter. Yes. He's the guy. He's Peter Vincent from Fright exactly. Night. He's the guy with the leather portmanteau bag, yeah. and he has a stake, and he has a mirror, and a crucifix, and holy water. Yeah. He, but that's not this Van Helsing. That's... This Van Helsing doesn't know know that vampires exist i mean he he is we're reminded frequently that he has an open mind and he's very knowledgeable about sort of you know about the supernatural and about folk customs but he's he's as in the dark as anyone at the moment Mm. going back to what we said last week about how is the coppola version a faithful adaptation and how I said I feel it tells a fundamentally very different story because to me the Coppola Dracula movie is is a love story and I think that Gary Oldman's Dracula is is incredibly sympathetic and he is, mm, he is. he's kind of the hero or I guess the anti, I guess the anti hero you really you know yeah. and I suppose to have a really earnest uh Van Helsing like he's written in the book it's a bit like you know in the Hammer Dracula as much as we love Christopher Lee and he's very charismatic, he's playing a villain mm. and you kind of, you root for Peter Cushing as the hero who will charge in and save the day. And you don't feel like that with Gary Oldman's Dracula. So I guess Van Helsing kind of has to be slightly grotesque almost yeah. because you don't really want him to defeat Dracula. No, you don't. You don't because if he defeats Dracula, that's the love story over. And you know at this exactly, at, yeah. at this point you know that Dracula and Mina have both been through so much pain that you don't want anything yes. to kind of get in their way and then you no. and then you remember no. what Dracula did to Lucy and <laughs> <laughs> god i think it it's quite it's quite hard um to find a sort of hero and villain pairing where you kind of root for them equally Darth Vader is one of those great villains that you just love and want to see him succeed even if he's being evil and killing people Mm. and yet but it's the tragic backstory it's the tragic it's the tragic backstory and the fact that actually particularly with Coppola's Dracula he's incredibly human there's so much humanity there mm-hmm. within the character that for yeah. me you don't see within any of the other sort of you know major like with Lugosi or Lee that that humanity just isn't there but I suppose conversely we've got the most human Van Helsing he's flawed you know he's not by any means a perfect person you know he's not what you would call sort of the archetypal hero or savior of of the film he's a complete arsehole so i suppose the characters within are all incredibly human it's funny i'm you know that concept of, of humanity and i'm thinking ahead to when lucy dies and yet they all seem to think that she's so much more beautiful in death but um she's not dead yet but there's um there's a very cool scene 
where Van Helsing arrives and he's shown up to Lucy's room. And then Jack says, if I was shocked when I saw her yesterday, I was horrified when I saw her today. She was ghastly, chalkily pale. The red seemed to have gone even from her lips and gums and the bones of her face stood out prominently. Her breathing was painful to see or hear. And then, uh, again, that idea of, of Dracula being a very modern novel for its time and the sort of di- the dichotomy at the heart of Van Helsing, how he is this kind of, you know, expert in in ancient things and yet also a, a man of science. Uh, it says, there is no time to be lost. She will die for sheer want of blood to keep the heart's action as it should be. There must be transfusion of blood at once. Mm. Van Helsing loves his blood transfusions. He does love his blood transfusions. <laughs> she wants blood and blood she must have. So I've, got, I've got that underlined. <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> so he says, is it to be you or me? And Jack offers his own blood. Um, but then Arthur arrives and they say, well, be- better to be you. And even that, um, Arthur declares, I would give the last drop of blood in my body for her. And, Vel- and Van Helsing says... My young sir, I do not ask as much as that, not the last. Compare that to how Anthony Hopkins <laughs> delivers the line. But then there's a very cool and again iconic moment where Van Helsing, he thinks, you know, he's he doesn't know why she's losing all this blood, but he's fairly sure with with, with modern medical science they can save her by, with blood transfusions. But then there's the moment when he notices the puncture marks on Lucy's neck. The narrow black velvet band, which she always seems to wear round her throat, buckled with an old diamond buckle which her lover had given her, was dragged a little up and showed a red mark on her throat. Arthur did not notice it, but I could hear the deep hiss of indrawn breath, which is one of Van Helsing's ways of betraying emotion. And then Van Helsing asks Jack what he makes of the mark on her throat and Jack said he hadn't even seen it but then he notices just over the external jugular vein there were two punctures not large but not wholesome looking there was no sign of disease but the edges were white and worn looking as if by some trituration it once occurred to me that this wound or whatever it was might be the means of that manifest loss of blood but I abandoned the idea as soon as formed for such a thing could not be the whole bed would have been drenched to a scarlet with the blood which the girl must have lost to leave such a pallor as she had before the transfusion where is the blood going (gasps) the blood so good it's so good and then again in terms of this van helsing not being the peter vincent character that we we know and love when we think of van helsing i love that he's something some little alarm bell has sounded at the back of his brain Mm. and then he's yeah. And I, I said before how I saw so much of Dracula in The Devil Rides Out and he's very, Van Helsing is very Duke de Richelieu. Uh, and there's the bit where he suddenly announces that he must go back to Amsterdam immediately for there are certain books he needs to consult. And that really put me in mind of Christopher Lee. It's like, uh, I, I must leave you all now to visit the British Museum. <laughs> oh, the British Library. I remember um, there's a scene, isn't there, in Coppola's Dracula where... Is it where they're standing about in a graveyard trying to work out where the blood is going? And they sort of like have all these ideas and then 
I think it's um, Richard E. Grant says something about something flew. Mm. Is it something flew yes. down, drained it out of her, and then flew away without spilling a drop? And then Van, Van yeah. Helsing's like, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that is, in terms of what we were saying about how Lucy's death is so glossed over in the Universal film, but they've kind of, mm. uh, in the same way that they gave a lot of. Uh, Jonathan stuff to Renfield I feel that they they used Mina more as sort of Dracula's victim and it's Mina who has the puncture marks on her neck and there and there's a really beautiful but cheeky scene where um somebody I can't remember if it's Van Helsing or Jonathan Harker but he says but what could have made the marks on her neck and then Mina says Count Dracula and it's really surreal like she's answering their question like how how do you and then you realize that he's he's walked into the room and she's greeting him and it's so cheeky i love it um but van helsing has obviously uh you know found he's he's gone to consort what some esoteric texts we we know not but he comes back uh insistent uh on putting some flowers in lucy's room and uh, who is it? Is it her daughter? Is it Mrs? Because of course the other th- plot um, thing that's that's rumbling on is that Lucy's mother, Mrs. Westenra, uh, has heart disease and she's been given a few months left to live. But Lucy doesn't know. I think yes, I think that's, that's right. who he's talking to at, the, at this moment. But uh, but she's saying, um, "Why these flowers are only common garlic?" And she thinks it's a joke. But Van Helsing is all sternness. Is no, no trifling with me. I never jest. There is grim purpose in all I do, and I warn you not to thwart me. <laughs> what I might, I'm going to start saying that. There is grim purpose in all I do. And then it's quite tragic because he's, he's, he's quite pleased with himself and he thinks that the treatment is working. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, she, she seems to be returning to health. But then, and we, we touched upon this last time in the Universal film where... I think he asks someone to put up some wolfsbane in 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 that yeah That's in Mina's right. room. He's like, but they take it yeah. down, uh, and then. Well, I was anxious about the dear child in the night and went into her room. She was sleeping soundly, so soundly that even my coming did not wake her. But the room was awfully stuffy. There were a lot of those horrible, strong-smelling flowers about everywhere. And she actually had a bunch of them round her neck. I feared that the heavy odour would be too much for the dear child in her weak state. So I took them all away and opened a bit of the window to let in a little fresh air. You will be pleased with her, I am but sure. But Van Helsing is not pleased. What have you done? I watched the professor's face and saw it turn ashen grey. For the first time in my life, I saw Van Helsing break down. And then we, we begin to realise what he's been researching and he know you know, why he's putting up these flowers. He's he in God. knows yeah. that she's done for and at this says, point. Um, what have, what we, have done? we done? Is there a fate amongst us still sent down from the pagan world of old that such things must be and in such way? And then he says, devils or no devils or all devils at once. It matters not. We fight him all the same. Who is he? I mean, Dracula, obviously, but, um, you know, Van Helsing hasn't read Jonathan Harker's journal at this stage, but and yet he senses some some evil orchestrating all of these horrific events. There's, there's a lot 
in the narrative, isn't there, as well, about mothers and children. So much. And yeah. the loss, the loss of, of children to mothers. Which I want to pick up on later when we talk about Undead Lucy, actually. But there's another bit. Every time I read it, I think it's... um. I think it's a nightmare, and then I remember it's re- it's when Lucy's mum dies, and the whole thing of her walk walking into the room, um, it's really sort of nightmarish and awful. And here as well, just just looking, poor Doctor Seward feels that he's starting to go yes, completely yeah. insane with everything. And and again, at this point, when was the last time we actually saw Dracula? The devastation yeah. that he's yeah. wreaking. We're over a hundred pages in now, and he hasn't Count Dracula hasn't been seen since she was, you know, fat with blood and leech-like in his coffin on page forty-five. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Lucy's grown quite fond of the garlic. Yeah, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and a box full of rice. Yeah, for me and every Lucy day. seems quite happy, and yet there is. Bats yeah. or something flapping almost angrily against the window panes. And I love that. Like, that, you know, she's covered in this garlic and Dracula's still out there, but angry that he can't get in. Um, mm, yeah, that subtext is everything, isn't and it? And I love that at no point, and of course, you know, Van Helsing is about to give us a big law exposition dump, which is I, one of my favourite bits of the book, actually, because there's just so much contained within that and so all the rules are laid out for all vampire fiction to come and yet even though we're told mm. you know he can shapeshift and da, da 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 we never once see dracula turn into a bat it's not no. it's also subtle no. and everything that's kind of happened in isolation could be explainable oh there's a bat flapping out a window there was a shipwreck oh there was a dog running around oh lucy was sleepwalking oh but now she has some kind of strange anemia like to me that's the most effective kind of storytelling it's not in your face it's not over the top it's just lots of odd things happening and then you get the van yeah. helsing character sits down and says okay now i know why and it will really stretch your credulity but you you have so much faith in him uh, as a as a reasonable logical person who isn't prone to flights of fancy you know yeah and it's talking about faith i mean the shaking of faith within the story for the people that are in lucy's orbit you can feel the pain and the desperation because they don't have answers. They don't know what's going on. And they're watching somebody that they love dearly turning into a husk oh, of a person God, yeah. before their eyes, you know. And obviously, if something like that were to happen nowadays, obviously we've got science has mm-hmm, moved on mm-hmm. a lot since then. But that feeling... Of helplessness yeah helplessness we can all feel what that feels like um oh it it's it's, it's just well hard, it is isn't it? just <laughs> when you really yeah because we it. you know as 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 goths and lovers of gothic literature and horror you kind of rub your hands with glee and it's all wonderful like the puncture marks and the and and the blood on yeah. the nightdress and the, and the fact that she's going to be that she's going to die but but rise again and it's it's like you like kind of you know just gleeful with anticipation but and that's again the thing with dracula i can read everything almost twice and have a sort of cognitive dissonance about it, how I can love and hate Count Dracula, and I can see Van Helsing as the hero and the villain. Uh, you know, you can read everything, mm. and they, I can sort of... C- 
there's a duality that runs right the way through. Even though, like, I just, I find vampiric undead Lucy, like, so cool and so sexy. And, like, at the same time, what is happening here to this person, to this girl, is horrific. And there is this... Oh. This this desperation, yeah. especially with Arthur, like like you say, the utter helplessness and what is she's wasting away and the idea of Jack, like if I, you know, I was horrified when I saw her because she was so ill. But going back to what you're saying about Van Helsing and Faith, it reminded me there's a, a brilliant quote later on where Van Helsing says, um, I once heard of an American who so defined Faith, that which enables us to believe things which we know to be untrue. Talk about, you know, cognitive dissonance and duality. Absolutely. Uh, But again, there's more and more and more. I went to the window and looked out but could see nothing except a big bat, which had evidently been buffeting its wings against the window, like Dracula's trying to get in. And Lucy's self-awareness as well of what's going on. I, she says, I have a dim half-remembrance of long anxious times of waiting and fearing darkness in which there was not even the pain of hope to make present distress more poignant and then long spells of oblivion she's feeling all these feelings it's so tragic it really really is because she's now not long for this world despite she's not uh, all of the uh the transfusions And going right back to the beginning of this episode and Lucy's comment about, you know, why can't a girl have, why can't a girl marry three men? You can't, it's impossible not to to read this scene as almost um, effectively having her three husbands. Uh, And going back to what you were saying in the first episode about sort of blood and semen and, you know, how the Victorians considered that. And that 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 idea of a blood transfusion, it's, you know, it's barely even subtext that they're sort of exchanging bodily fluids with her. And Arthur yeah. mentions that. I can't remember exactly where it is because he doesn't know that she's also had transfusions from uh, Quincy Morris and Jack and even Van Helsing, I think. The blood of four men. Yeah. And, and Arthur says... Um, because, of course, she dies before they can actually get married, even though they're engaged. And he, he basically opines that having given her his blood, that, that well, well, you know, I made her my wife after all. And, they see, and Van Helsing and Jack are like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, no, we, we, we all had her, Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> but they do make comment, don't they, about... Um... I can't remember who it is, but it says something about the fact that she's had the blood yeah. of four men and still she yes. needs more. She's insatiable. Ins- literally insatiable. I can't help but wonder if there are innuendos there sometimes. Like, Stoker must have been aware of this. All the way through. Like, so all after the all these through. transfusions, the Dutchman, what a fine old fellow he is. I can see that. Said the time the two of you came into the room that you must have another transfusion of blood and that you were that both you and he were exhausted like <laughs> <laughs> leave the poor girl alone but then but at this point lucy really isn't long for this world um and there's a really interesting moment where she tries to kiss arthur oh arthur my love uh, i'm so glad you've come and arthur goes to kiss her but van helsing holds him back 
and it's like he mm. knows at this point that she she's going to bite him. Van Helsing, who, like me, had been startled by her voice, swooped upon him, and catching him by the neck with both hands, dragged him back with a fury of strength, which I never thought he could have possessed, and actually hurled him across the room. Not on your life, he said. Not for your living soul and hers. He stood between them like a lion at bay. Again, I'm going to be a stuck record here, but that's very, very Dirichlu. It's not just your life you're risking, it's your very soul. (laughs) Yeah. So, despite all of the blood transfusions, uh, Lucy is too weak and she dies and there's nothing they can do. Uh, And that's when things start to get really interesting. And some of the descriptions of Lucy in death in this book, they just should not be allowed. It's obscene, it's perverse, because it's so beautiful. Some change had come over her body. Death had given back part of her beauty, for her brow and cheeks had recovered some of their flowing lines. Even the lips had lost their deadly pallor. It was as if the blood, no longer needed for the working of the heart, had gone to make the harshness of death as little rude as might be. God. (laughs) It's just this whole section now, the funeral, everything, and Arthur says, Ah, well, poor girl, there is peace for her at last. It is the end. But then Van Helsing says, Not so, alas, not so. It is only the beginning. Well, it may only be the beginning of Lucy Westenra's undeath, as it were, but it is the end of this episode because we've 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 run on a little bit. We warned you that when we got started on Lucy, and we haven't even really got round to Lucy proper, so we're going to save uh, vampiric Lucy Westenra for our our third and final, possibly final episode on Dracula. So join us again next week, and in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to From Page to Scream wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Instagram at frompagetoscream.podcast. Or to join in the conversation, let us know what you think. Email us at fptspodcast at gmail.com. Or if a week is too long to wait for your next From Page to Scream fix, why not head over to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash from page to scream podcast if you join for just six dollars a month you'll have access to uh, our two bonus episodes on the 1958 hammer horror dracula starring christopher lee and the legendary 1922 nosferatu